Professor Michael Hebron is a video and performance artist who works out of Los Angeles. Professor Hebron has studied at UCSD, the Accademia di Belle Arti in Venice, Italy, and UCLA. She founded Gallery B12, a cooperative artist-run exhibition and lecture space in Hollywood. Hebron co-produced the Full Nelson Festival, a showcase of international performance art, and in 2004, founded the LA Art Girls. Since receiving her MFA, Professor Hebron has held teaching positions in new genres in contemporary art history and theory at Art Center, College of Design, UCLA Extension, and Chafee College. Mikol Hebron, welcome to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Yes, and we're excited to speak with you. I mean, your artwork is so, if I may say, provocative. It really makes us think about those deep questions of feminism, representation of women, and inclusivity of, you know, women's voices and within the gallery and museum scene. And you've really been so forthright. How did you find the courage to address uh, these issues? Uh, and were we always uh, so forthright? Or how did, how did you evolve as an artist in that way? Oh, thank you so much for that really great opening question. I, I am concerned a lot with the representation and equitable representation of women, but also just all genders, really. I mean, not, not to sound too generalist, but I think examining issues of gender-based oppression is what's really interesting me now. And yes, I did start with looking at specifically female identified bodies and I'm trying to be, you know, I'm perpetually evolving and expanding, I think, in this pursuit. I, I do tend to be a pretty confrontational person, <laughs> so I'm told. And, and I feel that I'm pretty courageous in my expression both personally and in my artwork, when I see something that I perceive to be an injustice. And I've always been very passionate about speaking out against injustices. I'm lucky in that I'm, I was born into a, a white, cis white body that, that I have a little bit more freedom. I feel that I have more freedom or maybe a little bit less risk in speaking out against, you know, in speaking out against things and risking kind of repercussions. I've certainly experienced repercussions for speaking out and being so vocal and confrontational in my artwork, but I do think I have a little bit more privilege in that way than some other bodies might. So I've taken advantage of that. I feel like I've, I've taken advantage of the ability to speak out against things that are wrong and often I find that if something feels wrong to me, once I articulate it in, a, in an artwork, I, f I get a lot of feedback from the community that is also experiencing that injustice. So I know when a piece is good based on how, what kind of response I get from the community. And if it's, if it's an issue that's affecting a lot of people, you know, I get, a, I hear a lot of feedback. And I, I grew up as a a child of two hippie parents in Northern California. And we were a very atypical or non-traditional household. We were, we moved around a lot. Sometimes we were unhoused. Sometimes I wasn't in school. Sometimes I was in school. I, I grew up with very kind of liberally minded 
non-religious parents and they gave me a lot of freedom as a child. And I think that really contributed to my passion for experimentation and creative expression and confrontation and speaking out. I mean, the climate in the West Coast of the US in the 1970s when I grew up was one of dissent and one of questioning the norms and one of creative exploration. And it's so interesting to use the word freedom because we think about it, we're recording this. Well, 4th of July was not long ago. Actually, I had posted about that. What is freedom to you? Because we have all this, these different notions of freedom. And for some, it's the ability to speak out as you have. For others, it's, you know, even a sexual liberation or a freedom of not being defined by others' expectations and limitations, or it's like a libertinage. So there's so many, and I, you know, live, or I work, you know, have projects in America, but I live in Paris. And of course, our notion of freedom freedom and our expectations of one what is allowed to show and what is obscene, you know, sexuality, it, it differs a little from America. So I guess what is freedom to you? And then on the other side of that, you know, what is obscenity and what is, why are people troubled by your images and why don't they necessarily trouble you? I can understand from your upbringing, it was different. <laughs> um, I... Wow. Freedom is a, I think it's difficult to talk about freedom without talking about capitalism and colonialism, right? It is necessarily indefinite, you know, in, in conversation or in reaction to, or defined by those things. If we didn't have nations, if we didn't have the state, if we didn't have institutions, if we didn't have systems of incarceration, you know, whether we're talking about physical incarceration, social incarceration, you know, these, these modes of imprisonment that are carried out as a way of controlling society all over the world, right? They're different in each society, but they, they exist pretty ubiquitously. And I think if we didn't have those systems, we'd be having a different conversation about freedom, right? So in some ways, freedom is the opportunity to, to live outside of systems of incarceration. And, and I think that's when we hear feminists and activists and you know people like Patrice Cullors or Angela Davis talking about abolition still today, that to me, that's what they're talking about, right? Abolition, not just with the prison system in the United States, for example, but the, the abolition of the carceral state that affects our society. And, and as you note, I think that there are a lot of confining institutions that police the body, that police our notions of the body. I mean, so freedom for me also on a personal level means, you know, freedom, freedom to live a life of choice, to, to live a life of, of true expression of self. But I also feel that we talk, we don't, not talk, I feel that we define uh, humans, define our existence in the world very much in relation to a sense of entitlement to land, to resources, to place. So I, I, I think about freedom as also affecting the entire planet, as affecting the biosphere, the ecosystem, the animals and the plants. And, you know, freedom in that sense would also mean, you know, freedom from pollution, freedom from invasive species, freedom from decimation, like we are really destroying our planet. So 
and maybe in in that case freedom would be an impossible an impossible goal i so i think about about the freedoms that i have to speak out to make the art that i want to make to to engage in the social relationships that i want to engage in to travel to move through the world you know these are all freedoms that are afforded to me because i hold a certain position in relation to the political environment in the country in which i live the ecological environment i mean i think a lot of our freedoms as we think about them are are becoming constrained as we see the climate crisis increase um and and the times that we live in you know i think my freedoms as a cis white woman would be very different 100 years ago or 50 years ago than they are now and i think a lot about what it will look like in the future i'm very excited to think about what will freedom be like in the future and i really hope that we will abolish the binary like i would like to see abolition of the gender binary just as an idea i think it's a tool of capitalism and a tool of the patriarchy that that very directly and explicitly benefits both of those institutions and and harms more than 51% of the population on the globe obscenity is equally an artificial term i i think it's a tool of of the kind of conservative demographics of the right to to police, like obscenity is a tool of incarceration. It's a tool of policing, of defining and policing cultural content. We don't really ever talk about things like trees or animals being obscene, right? It's a pretty distinctly human, it's, it's applied pretty, pretty specifically and distinctly to human activity and human perception. I use the word obscene when I see someone acting so egregiously or enacting, say, behaviors, punishments, words upon another person that are so beyond the realm of justice, I would say, oh, that is obscene. You know, that's an obscene way to be or an obscene way to act. And typically for me, something that is obscene is something that takes away someone's freedoms, something that hurts someone else, something that contributes to the carceral state in some way, whether it's the state of their mind or the state of their their body in, in public space. I'm very sensitive to the history of the word obscenity in the United States because Senator Jesse Helms did worked real hard to impose what he called the obscenity clause in in Congress in the late 1980s and 19, early 1990s when we had what we call the culture wars. And Helms was trying to propose that artists who engaged in homosexual acts and imagery, that engaged in anti-Christian imagery, that engaged in the depiction of children, that they were, that that was obscene and therefore could and should be punished by law. And now I think we're in another culture war. I think we are in, uh, as we see, the realm of cancel culture in social media and this, this very polarizing war between the liberal left and the conservative right, if you will. I think that we're in another culture war and, and a lot of it is centering around gender 
and race. And if you look at what's happened to black women athletes in the last couple of months with the censoring of their bodies, either because of hormones in the case of Castor Semenya, for example, or Naomi Osaka, or, you know, like there's, there's a lot of ways that our society has found to police black bodies for being too exceptional in a lot of ways, you know, for being, for performing in exceptional ways. And, and the white patriarchy doesn't like to see that because it starts to, to diminish their power. So I think, well, and, and we're having, you know, we're having a moment where trolls, you know, trolls on the internet, conservative trolls on the internet will propagate misinformation, false stories, hate speech, and drum up a lot of frenzy and passion on the part of the community in terms of potentially censoring or canceling certain bodies and certain ideas. There was recently an incident in Los Angeles where someone claimed that they took a video of themselves at a spa, at a Korean spa, and they claimed that they were outraged because a trans woman had entered the women's section of the spa. Here, the spas are gender, they're divided they're by in sections. They have a male and a female section, but no gender neutral section, for example. And this and the and the person posting the video was outraged. They claimed that, you know, it was that they, they kind of trumped up all these familiar mythologies about trans women being, you know, not quote real women and, and being men who are out to, who are predatory and looking to attack cis women or children, all of which is of course completely false. I mean, trans women and women of color, trans women of color are, are among the most threatened demographic in the United States for being murdered. And it turns out they completely made up this, this charge and then called all the news outlets. And what resulted was two weekends of protests outside of the spa over an incident that didn't even happen. And the spa has a trans inclusive policy. Like trans women are allowed in the women's area because they're women. And, and so I, and I learned this term astroturfing, which is sort of like wagging the dog with, with news media and, and creating these kind of false accounts of, um, you know, indignation or claims of obscenity. Is like, I think that's what that looks like today. And, and it's a dangerous place to be. It's people who are kind of looking to perpetuate the carceral state with regard to policing, policing bodies and people's identities. I do want to say... In terms of freedom, if we're talking about bodies, I mean, I think the freedom to express and be and articulate one's identity in terms of gender and sexuality is crucial, right? The freedom to to simply live as you are is one thing, but also to have that identity not questioned, to have it accepted, to have it respected, to have it integrated into the community. And I think right now we're still really struggling with that kind of equity in our communities, at least in the States. 
And so it's interesting, and I'd love to hear from Austin, who is one of our younger university team members, because you've grown up, Austin, in, you know, it wasn't my generation that even had uh, the levels of acceptance towards trans people. But then speaking on the, the flip side of that, in terms of liberties, you've also grown up it, with its freedom of information, but also where privacy, do you say that the opportunity to be formed and not you know, monitored or judged or bullied. These, these are other uh, freedoms that we've lost in that, that period. So I was wondering what you think about these different issues and if you could even imagine growing up in a different atmosphere, maybe the generation that and me and, and Mikkel grew up in. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think that in terms of like privacy and surveillance, I don't, I think it, honestly feels like less of an invasion to me because it's so normal. I don't really feel like, sur I, I feel surveilled, you know, and like you, you have your phone and it's listening to you and ads pop up and things like that. But I don't feel like it's as much of an invasion as maybe your generation might feel that it is. But I don't know, in terms of growing up with like more acceptance. I do feel like very lucky for that in high school. You know, I don't, I grew up in a very inclusive high school, which was really amazing, but you still experience so many. I also, it's also hard because I grew up in a liberal bubble, you know? And so there are moments today where I feel so isolated in that world and hearing about other areas of the country or you know, other social groups where there's just so much oppression um, and hatred is very jarring to me. So I don't know, in ways, I feel like the culture has shifted and become more accepted um, and more accepting, but there, it, it's so polarized that it still feels like there are areas of the country where it's like, hasn't changed in a hundred years. <laughs> so, yeah. This idea of privacy is really interesting to me. And, and I think it also goes along in, in some ways with the conversation of entitlement, you know, and what, what are we entitled to? I think that there is no media that we use that isn't a tool of, of corporate, you know, contemporary corporate structure. And therefore it kind of stuns me that anyone, anyone would expect any privacy at all. Once you agree to sign on to, to the internet, you know, to your browser, to Facebook, to Snapchat, to TikTok. And, and in fact, I think I, I understand the normalization of surveillance and, and expectations about privacy, but I also am deeply concerned about younger generations, lack of awareness of how these, the tools of privacy and surveillance are militarized on the part of Google, for example, on the part of SpaceX and Snapchat and Facebook, that you know Google Maps very specifically don't show parts of the world that are in civil war because they don't want us to see. Google Maps doesn't show parts of Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, because it doesn't want us to see the impact of fracking. You know, Google Maps doesn't show specifically what's happening along the Israeli-Palestinian border. So, I, and I think, you know, not to be wary of those things is pretty dangerous because as we've seen, for example, in the 
you know, even just with the January 6th in insurrection, right? Like the FBI just got to work immediately looking for people on social media. And while I'm delighted for to see some of these crazies get indicted and arrested, it could very easily go the other way, right? Like for every, for every meme and algorithm that we participate in that says like, oh, put a picture of your face and show us what you, uh, we'll show you what you look like in 10 years. Oh, give, you know, put your fingerprint here. Oh, give us all these, every expression that you ever make so that we can find you at any given time that we want. And all it takes, as we have seen by say, like Instagram banning and Twitter banning hashtags, all it takes is for them to decide that artists, feminists, liberals, trans folks are their target and we get erased. Like, boom, like that. You know, and I think that I think it's naive to think that that's not not coming and not possible. So I really I mean, I love social media. I'm on it all the time, too. But I also try to work very hard to teach my students about, you know, to just to be skeptical, to be cynical, to be aware, to, to think about how things might be being used. I mean, we only use a very small portion of the Internet in our in our daily life. Right. The dark web is much bigger than the Internet that we actually kind of like see and navigate and, 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 and it doesn't, there aren't good intentions out there. Like it's not, it is, it is, it is a machine for control and profit. And, and so I think in, in that way, you know, privacy, I don't know what privacy would even mean in contemporary society, right? <laughs> because if you have a name and a phone number and a social security number and a credit card and a cell phone, like everybody knows everything anyway. Like you're at like anyone's they're fooling themselves think that you may, they may not know. You know, it's apt because at this moment, I, I mean, I don't know why I think it'll probably be back up. And I actually, my Instagram just came down for reason i'm not even sure why i think because these algorithms scan things now listen i sometimes do videos i'm an artist so i sometimes do videos and it's nothing nearly as controversial or even i'm i'm not, not against nudity or i'm gosh i live in paris so but listen i put up a video and it was silhouetted actually the whole video show has you can see a nipple but in silhouette it's not like even it's a story. It's a. It's very romanticized. It's nothing. Nothing. Nothing you would say obscene. Anyway, the video that I think an algorithm tagged. I have no idea. Actually, it just came down suddenly. So the whole thing down. So I guess it'll go back up. But it tagged a silhouette, and they thought. And there's just like the back of my shoulders. <laughs> so so it incorrectly tagged it. <laughs> and so I I believe that's the case. It could be for some other reason, but I can't see that I offended anyone. And so, so that the, the will go back online, I guess. But you have shown, of course, parts of your body just more well lit, more. And oh. and going back to that question of obscenity, and I'm so glad you brought up the um, the environmental struggles that we face and those kind of human rights, because to me, a human, you know, a woman's nipple is not obscene. What's obscene is, you know, eight million deaths a year due to air pollution. It's children dying in wars or human traffic. And okay, these things are genuinely obscene. And as you say, Google Maps not showing the fracking or the Palestinian, you know, is Israeli border. That's obscene. You know, those are the things like if you really want to crack down on things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're sort of touching upon an issue with regard to, to the the male nipple pasty that, that interests me a lot, which is people often think 
oh, it's so like, it's so silly, like get over it. Like we have far bigger issues in the world to worry about than nipples. Yes, on the face, I totally have, you know, face of things, I completely agree with that. However, my interest and intention in exploring the, the kind of policing of these bodies is I believe kind of like, it is literally a gateway to all of these conversations because it's about bodily autonomy. It's about respecting other living things. It's about not making assumptions. And, and we can come at it with something that is kind of people think of as almost humorous, right? Like think nubs, nubs and holes in the body that everyone thinks is funny. Like, you know, nipples, belly buttons, you know, noses, like anything that protrudes or goes in, we're like a kind of obsessed with. And I think that it, if, so I think a lot about some of the maxims that I kind of have running through my head on a daily basis are the, the Hippocratic Oath, like first do no harm. What does it mean to live a life on this planet and, and to do no harm? What does that mean as for me as a teacher to get walk into the classroom and do no harm? Or as an artist to do no harm, you know, emotionally, materially, environmentally. But then I also think about Gandhi saying to be the change that you wish to see in the world. And I think a lot about the principles of leave no trace. I really like I hike and camp a lot. I love, love, love the, the you know, wilderness especially of the United States. And, and I think a lot about what it means to kind of occupy these spaces and, to, and to, to, to do no harm when you're occupying these spaces. But I also run into this conflict of, you know, how does one simultaneously do no harm, leave no trace, but also be the change that you wanna see in the world. And, and making change can leave a trace, right? We're told, I think kind of contemporary Western capitalist culture tells us from day one that it's your job to, to make a mark, to change history, to be, to be commemorated, to, to leave a legacy. And so I struggle with that a lot. And, and when I see that things are, are, there's an injustice, I want to change it, of course. And how do you get to that change without causing harm with the, with the centering of, of nipples, for me, the, the issues, and, the, and I, I recognize that there may seem to be some hypocrisy here in that there are bigger issues than nipples, but the, the act of censoring female nipples on social media does a lot of things. It assumes someone's gender. It revokes autonomy from the person posting. It devalues and belittles the experience of female identified people. And these things perpetuate what I see to be harms enacted on the part of the patriarchy, where we have, and in capitalism as well, we have this perpetual and systemic devaluing of bodies that are not cis men. That, and, and that's what I am hoping to change. You know? And if, if we can get to, if we can start to get to that conversation by this one small example of how bodies you know, that don't fit into that cis male package, how those bodies are perpetually policed and silenced and, and, and imprisoned, you know, on social media or banned. That is like, it's one example. And then we start to talk about all these other things. So like when I presented in my work about the male nipple pasty, I immediately got people saying, well, 
you know, what about black and brown bodies? Because I had posted this white male nipple image as, as the, the band-aid, right? Very intentionally to point out that it's the white male body that has the power, that if you kind of put this on, it's almost like, like white face for, for patriarchy and capitalism. You know, if you put on this white male nipple, it's acceptable and they won't question you. And then people start saying, well, what about, what about parents? being censored what about you know breastfeeding and all right or chest feeding because those images were censored too what about sex workers or people who use their body in their art facebook and instagram don't seem to acknowledge performance and video as art like they uh, they claim that you can post certain you know, you can post nudity if it's in the form of art but it seems that art is only sculpture and painting because they can't discern the difference between a, a pornographic photograph and a performance art photograph, which to me is like, that's obscene. I'm like, how, honestly, you've got like some of the most sophisticated AI in the world and they can't build algorithms or robots that can discern metaphor, sarcasm, artistic philosophy, you know, and those are that. So it's, to me, that also gets at like, what is really, what's human? Like, what is art? What is creativity? Like, what are, these are these things that are like so deep and, and, inherently part of of the human experience and the human existence my name is amy epps a senior at brigham young university and associate interdisciplinary humanities editor and podcaster for the creative process i am very passionate about women's rights and feminism and i'm getting a minor in global women's studies at my university as a BYU student, it made me very happy to know that McCole runs a feminist summer camp in Utah. To some, hearing Utah and feminism in the same sentence might sound like an oxymoron. However, the purpose of feminism is to unite women and girls from around the world to advocate for gender equality. Feminism does not and should not exclude women based on their race, religion, sexual orientation, or other forms of identity. Mikol Hebron's thoughts about the injustices of the world and the acts of violence against those in minority populations also inspired me to become a better advocate and global citizen. Her work as an activist and artist shows the interconnectedness between speaking out against injustice and creating art. Art is not just a cultural production, but also a form of advocacy as it has the power to influence our thoughts, emotions, and ideas. Nicole's acknowledgement of her privilege also stood out to me, as she knows that as a white cisgender woman, she has privileges and honored benefits that others do not possess. However, she uses her privilege to help better society by standing in solidarity with those whose voices have been quieted by systems of privilege. These oppressive systems that are at work in our society could be invisible to those who are not looking hard enough. And as Nicole explained, it is incredibly important to know and understand events which are taking place not only in your country, but on a global scale. Listening to this interview reminded me that ignorance and denial are both forms of oppression and violence against those who are trying to be made invisible or worthless by society. As human beings, we must do better to treat everyone with respect, dignity, and compassion. And that goes as well to the planet which we call home.
we must ask difficult and even controversial questions, as growth will never come from a, from a place of comfort or ease. Nicole Hebron's work is a great example of what we must do to promote a more egalitarian and fair world, and to fight against systems such as the patriarchy that fear the potential and ascent of a woman-led world. I, I think that the proportionately the access to pornography and erotic imagery and sex work that, that privileges the female gaze, the trans gaze, the non-binary gaze is so small. You know, so I think we need to level out that playing field. Um, I, I mean, as a primarily asexual person, I find it like I was really resentful that there wasn't like, I mean, what would asexual porn look like? You know, what would it look like to have just like, you know, like demi-romantic people kind of hanging out and, and, and like being totally intellectually stimulated by each other and cuddling like that wasn't available to me but it also gets it gets at the issue of sex ed which I've been talking about a lot with my with my students and with my peers and I think that that's an area that really needs revision I mean I think people like Soraya Chamali talk about that too and 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 it's a conversation that I've heard in feminist circles for for three generations now. And, you know, clearly it existed even before the generations that I've been exposed to, but I think in the, in the States anyway, and I would venture to guess around the world, our, our curricula for sex ed is incredibly conservative. It's very limited to this is hetero male gaze. It's, it's limited to reproduce, you know, sex as for the purposes of reproduction, and that's it. They don't talk about pleasure. They don't talk about female pleasure. We don't talk about masturbation. We don't talk about kind of alternative family structures. There's no, they don't talk about, they don't talk about adoption. They don't talk about polyamory. They don't talk about, you know, queer parents. I mean, it's just like, there's not, it's so absent. And when I ask my students about this, they almost always say, oh, I learned every, I learned everything I know from Instagram. You know, I learned it from Snapchat. I learned, you know, and and I'm thinking, okay, so on the one hand, great. I wish I could have gone to some, you know, to threads online and, and asked questions and gotten information. On the other hand, it's so random. It's so like, it just like, oh, let's hope you get onto the right account that suits your sexual interests, right? And I think I would love to see these platforms employ someone who is like exclusively in charge of like sex ed channels on social media to ensure that it is, that it's equitable, that it's factual, that it's, you know, that, that it's engaging, that it's kind of hitting all the marks, because as it is in the States, like, it's really, we still have the Christian right with their fingers, like, deep, deep, deep in the things, the, the way that those conversations go. And it also, like, starting from a very young age, we don't talk, we don't talk equitably and normal and normally about, about bodies and body parts. We have, you know, we, we don't talk about genitalia we, as, as a normal thing. Like, I can't tell you the number of people with vulvas that I've talked to who, who are ashamed of their vulvas, what they look like, who, who've never looked at it themselves, who relied on doctors to tell them what is and isn't right about their body or if there's something wrong. I mean, they're, that to me, I was that way too. Like, I thought my vulva was disgusting. And in fact, we use the wrong word, right? We still talk about it as vagina because we generalize 
bodies with vulvas like we're they're completely generalized it's not worth diving in with specific language and detail and respect and facts and this gets amplified and reverberates right this like eh, it's not that important it's interesting and the question and it's it's eye-opening that young people are uh, learning about things from instagram or stumbling upon pornography i I didn't, I avoid it. I mean, I guess, you know, I get, it's interesting that you, that you're asexual, you know, I think it's more titillating the less that one sees. And so that line, you know, just examining that line between what is pornography and what is sensuality, like maybe sensuality is, or considered seductive, it's more in the shadows, or maybe one exercises the imagination more. I was just reflecting as you were talking about it, you know, maybe there's more of a human story because like it could be, if it's, could be a film or I mean, like an art film or something, you know, like a, a fiction film, like a feature film or something, or if it's pornography, it's in my mind, because I really haven't exposed myself to that very much like I would avoid it because I guess I'm drawn more to the human stories where I can see individuals, you know, where sexuality might play a role, but it's not the whole, the aim of it, you know? So that question is interesting. And I think it's really important that sexual education Im embraces and goes more in, in depth on these things, because what you're, where you're leaving young people who have the access to um, the internet, just you're, you're letting them be educated by pornographers or you're letting them be educated by, you know, I don't know, some trolls or some people wanting to groom them online. You know, who's, <laughs> if you're going to say that that's who's going to educate you, you could be allowing strangers to educate your children. So in, a, in effect, you might be saying that you don't care uh, about you know, putting shame around it. So I think it's important that what shape that takes is, is obviously a little controversial. You know, it's interesting because I had stumbled upon, I don't even know how, I think I found an old Playboy or something when I was like, I don't know, eight or nine or something. And I remember, because this, I think, I think that it, the pornography has changed. I really don't know. But I, I, I think that they, they're shaved. They're sh shaved there. And oh no, I Marilyn Minter told me that they didn't used to be shaved in <laughs> the older, older, you know, Playboy magazines. Anyway, and I saw that they were shaved. And my impression as a child, I was like, oh, I was sad for them because they were grown women. And I thought, oh, they, they never matured because I knew that my mother, my we we weren't like like crude. So I saw, I'd see my mother said, they never grew up. I, I thought the, I was like, how strange. I said, because so I had drawn this conclusion because children find answers if they're not told. So I said, oh, they never grew up. So being involved in, I thought some kind of sex work, I didn't know. I just thought it meant that they never matured. And I was really so sad about it then. Well, and that like, that gets at, you know, our, our, our relationship to, to youth you know, particularly youth when it's ascribed to female identifying bodies is I think really problematic and, and, and disturbing. I mean, I wanna be careful about not villainizing pornography because I think in, in many ways, like there, there are things about it that are great. And, and when, we, when we make judgments about pornography or, or, you know, kind of pit it up against things that are good or things that are bad, it's, it's saying, you know, I think there's this implicit assumption that pornography is bad. I don't think pornography is implicitly bad. I think the problems, 
come with the ways that, as you point out, the way that the very fictionalized ways that bodies are represented, that, that to me, pornography never well, it didn't make sense for a lot of reasons for, for me, but like it was, it seemed so fictionalized. Like even like from the scenarios to the bodies to, the, to everything was it seemed so fictionalized that I couldn't I couldn't relate to it, and that and that's just me. I think a lot of people love that part of the fictionalization. I do think that that's where problems come in terms of of the models that we're given about how to engage in sexual acts with people about what we consider and what we value about bodies. I mean, it's like there's so much done to bodies in in pornography that 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 seems very artificial and excessive. I imagine there's very realistic pornography out there. I don't know. I don't I haven't sought it out. So I don't I don't know, but I and I, and I think I've, you know, I've similar I think it's it's an equally complicated conversation to talk about elective cosmetic surgery for whether whether it's you know implants enhancements facial reconstruction and and that gets further complicated when you're talking about trans folks getting gender affirmation surgeries or getting you know feminine facialization surgery or whatever you know so and I think those things often get comp, comp, like in intermeshed too and you know on the one hand while I personally would not. I, I would I think I would have even more of an identity crisis if I got a, a like facial work done, for example. I I also recognize um, and have several friends who've gotten surgery as they transitioned, and it made all the difference in the world. Like at that, instead, like helped them be like see themselves for who they were. Where you know, for me, it would be the opposite. So I just think it's. I'm always trying to think about, you know, what perspective are we not exposed to? What are we missing? What are we not considering? You know, if if we can talk about the the demographic of say millennials and Gen Z who who are normalizing conversations of non-binary identities and existence, you know, and that didn't exist. Certainly trans and non-binary people existed for me in my, in my upbringing, but the conversations didn't, right? The platforms didn't. So, so I think all the time about, like I was saying before, what is it, you know, that in 20 years or 10 years or 30 years, the generations will be, you know, what is it that will be normalized then that will seem wild to us now that we didn't have as part of our normal conversation. You know, I, I grew up in the AIDS crisis. Like, so I have these conversations about, you know, about, about misinformation, about viruses, about villainizing people for their, for their behaviors, because we want to condemn people of certain sexualities or certain identities. And I think we're seeing it happen all over, you know, and I, it's pretty harrowing to see, you know, I, I think in some ways we, we didn't, you know, because because of the government's like really intense attempts to cover up information about about the AIDS virus that reverberated, and you know the stories. I think it's you know my students don't like they don't really recognize how traumatic the AIDS crisis was, and that to me is like it was one of the most traumatic things of my childhood. And to now think that they're like, what's it? What is AIDS again? Like, really, literally, don't know. And it's not. And and I think that's not because it's not a threat. It's not because it's you know we have treatment now. It's because the story, the history, and the stories were covered up. 
I had one question that was more, I guess, specific to your art. And I'm kind of curious about the unicorn and your use of the unicorn and that as like a motif. And I was just curious when that entered your art and what it represents to you. Thank you for asking that because it's a, you, that's, it's so important to, I mean, it's, it's a good segue talking about sexuality because I am fully aware now that, that unicorns in the, in the queer community represent, you know, this, it's a whole different, like a unicorn is a different thing than the way that I've used it. I started working with unicorns as a symbol for me, they're a symbol of the patriarchy for me. And, and, and I, and I did a lot of research about the history of unicorns and the representation of unicorns in art in Western art history. And the unicorn in Western art history is very often either a stand in for Christ or kind of purity and immortality. And I was thinking, and so I started working probably in the 2001 was my first unicorn piece. And I worked with them for, for eight, about eight years, doing several iterations and, and with them in my mind as a symbol of the patriarchy, because in all of the historical accounts that I had seen of the presentations of unicorns, they were these majestic white creatures with a giant phallus on their head, and they were lusted after by young girls. And if they, the young girl was pure enough, she got to be with the unicorn and got immortality, right? And I'm like, well, that's patriarchy, right? That's capitalism. That is like, that's what they tell every tell us all. It's like this, this, this big phallic white institution is it is the thing we're all supposed to aspire to get and when we get there if we're good enough if we're pure enough if we're good enough when we get there we can then be with that institution forever and that to me was like insane so i actually set off to do a series of pieces in which over over time the narrative sort of like the soap opera and the narrative is that i set to work at seducing the, the patriarchy, the unicorn, and then assassinating it. So, it, and, and the first piece, the first piece that I did was a performance in which I was riding a unicorn and I was in this like princess dress. I was also thinking about all the ways that we kind of like sell, sell unicorns to little girls, like how I find it fascinating the way that kind of cultural metaphors get gendered and and kind of you know divvied out so early it's like girls draw horses and boys draw cars and and I did too you know but I also really liked cars but but I was obsessed with horses more than more than unicorns I was obsessed with horses though I did have some unicorns in my childhood um and the first time I rode a horse well maybe later as I rode a horse more as an adult I was like, oh, right. Now I remember why, or now I kind of realize why girls are kind of obsessed with horses. Like you can ride this horse and, and you're like, my thighs were so tired. My thigh, like, it was like, I had had sex all night long without having to have sex, you know? And then and like, I was like exhausted and my, like in my core and in my thighs from having like, you know, wrapped my legs around this like big muscular animal for, for a couple hours as I was riding. It was like, so exciting. It was great. I could keep my virginity and ride this horse and have this really erotic experience. I was like, oh, okay. So I was, I was sort of interested in 
like in deconstructing that mythology about about unicorns and horses in particular, I was also interested in this idea that you know, of, of rejecting something that was so popular. And uh, I think, you know, Roland Barthes, and I, I, I hate to cite white men, but there's probably other, other citations but to, that I could give that are better, but, you know, Roland, in Roland Barthes' kind of conception of mythologies, it's like, there are these, these kind of cultural mythologies that we kind of perpetuate for, for various reasons in our societies, and unicorns were, were one of those mythologies to me, and I like this idea of, you know, the act of, like, how rebellious and blasphemous would it be if you're, like, if you were to come out as, you know, a female identifying person, be like, I don't like unicorns, fuck those unicorns, I'm gonna kill it. Um, to me, that was an act of rebellion and kind of reclaiming that my own autonomy that I could, you know, I could reject the things that I was told I was supposed to love and like and find my own. And the first performance I did with unicorn was like I was saying to ride a unicorn while wearing this princess dress like Disney. I mean, I think Disney is also a real problem in all of these conversations in terms of kind of gender and oppression and obscenity and fascistic thinking. Uh, and so I was wearing this dress that had little birds that were like lifting it up. And, you know, it's supposed to kind of emulate this, this princess narrative, except that if you looked closely, you saw that the dress was torn and ripped and that I actually had bruises and scratches all over. And the narrative, the implied narrative was that I had been raped by that unicorn. That, that, but I was like putting on this happy face and I was doing the princess wave and I was smiling and I was playing in this, this soundtrack. I had this boom box. I was playing this soundtrack of, of very cheesy love songs. And I was just I like smiling. And it was, for me, it was a commentary on domestic abuse and this idea of like the ways in which we are abused and and assaulted, but we can't speak out about it. We just have to put on, you know, good, a pretty face and a pretty dress and hi. And then after that, like the next piece I did was a three-part series in which, like I said, like I eventually, like I'm establishing a relationship with this, you know, mystical, mythical creature. At one point, I, like, you know, we kind of fall in love and we sort of have this like courtship. But once I have attained my goal, I get a little bored and I have an affair with a black stallion, which is also commentary on race and, and race politics, particularly in the United States. And especially if we think about the history of white women and black men. I mean, I'm not necessarily a positive figure in this narrative either, right? And then, and then I, and then I'm discovered by the unicorn who gets jealous and he's like crestfallen and jealous to see me having this like affair with, you know, a black horse who is a horse, not a unicorn, by the way. And then we have a fight, and then ultimately, like the last frame of that series is you see me with the gun, this uh, gun in my hand, and the scope, and the unicorn in the scope, and the sights of the scope. And then the piece after that, you see the the unicorn that has been shot in the head, and it's looking in a in a pool at itself as it's dying, basically watching itself die. And in fact, that that taxidermy unicorn with a bullet in its head is still in my studio today. If anyone wants a unicorn in the throes of death, let me know. Why your story didn't make it past development at Disney? <laughs> Yeah. The, but a funny side note, which is like, so I was, I was trying to kind of construct this. I was thinking about it as like this deconstruction of mythologies and as this kind of rebellious act to reject that, that 
thing, that perfect, beautiful thing that we're all supposed to lust after. So I had for this period of time, it was probably about eight years, I had this, you know, everything was unicorn. Like all my usernames were unicorn. Well, it was actually unicorn killer. And, and it was the, <laughs> towards the beginning of this, this is a funny side story. You can keep it in or not. I don't, and whatever you choose, but towards the beginning of this, I was, it was maybe early ish in the realm of online dating. And my friends were really encouraging me to try to create, like set up a profile and do it. And I was like, I've always been bad at dating because I never, you know, I was, I was not looking for anything really. And, and I was trying to just like shoot Cinderella, stuff my foot into this glass slipper that was not for me. And it, the idea of it mortified me. And the first time I like created a profile, I was like really artistic and fanciful and, you know, kind of poetic and creative. And I got all these like, crazy loser guys who are like also into like dungeons and dragons and unicorns and they all wanted to you know they were all like wanting to be in a band or write their own script or blah 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 and I was like oh god this is not no that's not me at all and so then I like wrote a really earnest you know profile but I but the 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 <laughs> The first time around, I would have pictures of my art. I was like, you should know, like, this is what I do. And, you know, I had pictures of, and I was really proud of it. And so I had pictures from this unicorn series. This was also around the time where like a previous person that I was dating was kind of, they were a scientist and they're kind of embarrassed by how flagrant and poetic and kind of sexual my, my pieces were. And I did a piece where I had a tail attached to me and it was a performative thing anyway it was great I loved having a tail and 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 my partner at the time was like so embarrassed like they did not want to be seen with me then but when we went home they did want to like get in on the tail action and I'm like oh no 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 that's like uh uh-uh. so I was like well if I'm gonna see anyone they have to be like down with my art so I'm posting all these pictures from the unicorn series and I start getting all of these requests basically for threesomes from scientists because I was like I'm really into science and, da, da, da. and I was like I was completely I'm like what is going on like why do all these people did I say that? like I had no idea that because I was presenting like unicorn that that in that realm you know so unicorn is like a a, a disease-free kind of polyamorous person who is willing to kind of get involved in and I had no idea. And so I was like, oh, talk about like, you know, this like missed signals, this like code switching here. I was putting out these very clear signals for them and they couldn't figure out why I was like, you gross, fuck off. Like, you know, <laughs> so, you know, maybe my, 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 I, my attempts to kind of re-inscribe meaning or to use the unicorn in that way were kind of failed because I was, it, it had already morphed into another thing. I, I actually didn't know that that meant unicorn. I didn't know. <laughs> I found out the hard way. <laughs> well, it's, it, but the, no, it's, it, it's an interesting, it's, it, well, you know, that's, it comes back to that question of innocence, you know, because we were talking at the beginning of this conversation, you were talking about, you know, what is obscenity. And so, you know, we ascribe all this meaning or, you know, we say something is good or bad. We are projecting meanings onto things that they don't have. And certainly if you tell, you know, a young girl who's playing with her unicorn doll, you know, she has no idea that that might be 
the symbol for something else. So it, it's interesting what what the cultural meanings we assign to things, and it's and the different culture, different meanings they take on within different cultures. What's considered innocent and what's considered unacceptable changes, of course, from culture to culture. So it's it's very illuminating and important for us to be able to examine these received notions and and really what they mean, because often we are reacting to things without thinking, just because we've been taught to identify things in that way. And so, so your work is important in, in opening our eyes and, accept, and just understanding the nuances and complexities of because we're all individuals. So I guess in closing, you know, we're educational initiative and we do think a lot about the future and um, the arts and feminism and education, as you think about all these things and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, you know, what are some things that you'd like to change uh, so that we might have a better tomorrow? That's my favorite topic. I would love to change education. And I'm working really hard on that right now. I run a a summer feminist, it's a feminist summer camp in Utah and a feminist field school in France. And I'm, and I'm working on trying to buy land and build a permanent site for feminist summer camp, which will essentially be, I'm very interested in alternative education and kind of, you know, anti-institutional learning. Like I said before, I was raised as a, as a kind of hippie kid. I was, when I was in school, I was in a Montessori school. I grew up, you know, in, in nature a lot. I really value and think that kind of learning in nature is, is a, a really important part of our education that we've let go of. Largely, I think that I'm really interested in seeing what what non-hierarchical education looks like, like what happens when we consider everyone in the community to be a part of our school and and that we don't have a hierarchy that has, you know, staff, faculty, you know, staff, students, faculty, administrators, like what happens if we are all the teachers, if we are all the students, if we are all the staff and we're all kind of collaborating together on that. So my dream is to, to build this program that would serve as, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure yet somewhere between a residency and an alternative school or a school where people might come, you know, for a semester or a year in residence in a, a rural wilderness area and work on building visions for a, a feminist future. And I, I think that we do, we do, we desperately need to rethink the education model, whether it's from sex ed to in, in, you know, the K through two context or decorporatizing education. I mean, the conversations around student debt of late are just, you know, it's so devastating. And I think that the university environment has become a very corporatized for-profit environment. And that's, and it's just, it's heart-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching to me that that we've we found a way to turn education to a business and it's no longer education if you ask me so i would really like to see that i would love to see the gender binary abolished it's just it's keeping us in a very inequitable social structure and and when i just don't think we're going to be able to move forward with you know equity and freedom and autonomy for all bodies for as long as we have a gender binary 
I would of course also like to see capitalism abolished, but I know that's not going to happen. But I think as, as if we can get closer to recognizing the correlations between say the gender binary and perpetuating capitalism and the patriarchy, then that's a really good step in the right direction. If we can empower people to reject those structures to help, you know, become free from those very limiting and very confining and controlling structures of say the gender binary, I think we'll be a lot better off and we will be able to make steps forward. Well, you know, those are really um, important things. And, and I think that we can, we can make it there. We've seen the progress even in the last decade. And on the issue of capitalism, actually, we just did an interview with Richard Wolff, we, which we'll be publishing soon, who, of course, is a, a socialist and quite outspoken about these things. And he had shared that recent polls have shown, which had shocked me that Republicans polled when asked about whether they're open to the ideal idea of socialism said that they were. And he said it wasn't that they so much love socialism. It's this that they feel that capitalism has been letting them down. So they're open to other possibilities. So, I mean, if that, if, if, you know, Republic. I mean, this is like a huge, I was like 40% or something like, it was like, it, it seemed like a quite surprising number to me. So if Republicans polled would be able to say that even out loud to someone, you know, asking them, then it means, you know, maybe even there's, there's room to budge on the issue of capitalism, because as we know, I think it's a matter of branding and so many things are a matter of branding or semantics, whereas if you if you call it socialism, people don't like it. But if you call it like a collective or cooperative, it sounds like an enterprise, then they kind of feel they have co-ownership. Well, you know, it's it's socialism, (laughs) but but they just just don't use the S word. So and 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 definitely on, you know, eliminating the the gender binary and just allowing us to see each other for the individuals that we are and give due respect and and do rights to all. These are really important issues. And I wish we could discuss with you more. But of course, people can go uh, visit your work, perhaps take some of your workshops. I'd love to, to see you when you are in France as well. So just let us know if we can spread word of that here. And so I want to uh, thank you, Nicole Hebron, for your art that inspires us to examine the representation of women, trans, and non-binary people, sexuality, and inequities of the art world, and claim our place in society and at the center of culture. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Austin. It has been a total honor to speak with you today. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Amy Epps. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.